they were instrumental in changing, as far as I'm concerned, everything. They touched, there wasn't anything that they didn't touch, you know, and with three guitars and a drum, you know, that's crazy. I mean, how does anybody do that? Junctures from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I am Jack, and I'd like to introduce a very, very special guest for today's podcast. He goes by the name of Ernie Sheffaloo. For those who don't know Ernie, he is one of the most influential artists in rock and roll history. Ernie's designed countless iconic album covers, such as Jesus Christ Superstar, Alice Cooper's School's Out, and he's even designed the iconic tongue logo for the Rolling Stones. Over the span of only 14 years, Ernie created 183 album covers for rock legends like The Doors, Aerosmith, The Bee Gees, The Guess Who, Black Sabbath, Jefferson Airplane, Grand Funk Railroad, the list goes on. He's received three Grammy nominations for his work, 10 Music Hall of Fame awards, four awards of excellence from the Los Angeles Art Directors Club, and he's been presented with 25 gold albums and a triple platinum album by some of the bands whose album covers he's designed. Ernie is also the owner of the largest privately owned original album cover art collection in the world with over 350 signed originals and 3,000 photographs. You can check that out on OriginalAlbumCoverArt.com. In 2015, Ernie was inducted into the Album Cover Hall of Fame and he is just getting started. And he is a huge fan of the Beatles. So let's jump right into the interview. Hey, Ernie, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk to you again. How are you doing? Good, man. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for uh, having me on. You look the same as you did a bunch of months ago. You didn't change much. <laughs> I got older. <laughs> thank you for letting me come on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm a big Beatles fan. Even though I did the Rolling Stones logo, I'm a big Beatles fan. So, Ernie, for those who don't know the amazing work you've done, can you give us a brief rundown of the incredible things you've done and how you got there and how you got started. Well, yeah, you mean like the mostly the album cover stuff, right? Totally. Yeah, I, I started out in, uh, actually in 1969 when I went to New York uh, after graduating college to uh, work on Madison Avenue because that's what all ad people want to do. And uh, that was a dream, an aspirational dream. And um, while I was working on Madison Avenue, one of the agencies that I work for, um, had Decca Records as an account. And uh, they were getting ready to lose the account because of the two art directors that worked at the agency left the agency and was taking the client with them. I went to work for this agency because they were losing the account and they didn't have anybody to compete in their roster of art people that were there in the agency. It was a big agency in the uh, New York Life Building. They hired me uh, to, the, the owner of the agency knew uh, a person higher up than the creative director at Decca Records and got them to agree to a shootout. So the shootout was basically competing, you know, the two, the art directors that had left competing with the agency they had left from for the account. So um, they hired me to be their creative director and come up with something for this project. And the project turned out to be the Jesus Christ Superstar album. 
I had done an album for International Paper Company before this, about six months before this opportunity came up. And it was a off-Broadway play for International Paper Company. It was like a sale, national sales meeting that was a play and skits and songs and all that stuff. And there was an album cover designed for that and given to the participants. So I had that album cover as experience. We went to the briefing. The project was the Jesus Christ Superstar album uh, by two unknowns, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who nobody had ever heard of. And they had this Jesus Christ Superstar uh, concept and album that was kind of like holding on to a hot potato because there was a lot of controversy with that album in the church and the, the record company was uptight and you know everything was kind of crazy but it went ahead and uh, we we uh, actually I won the project um, I had given myself four days to come up with an idea because I wanted to present before the other agency presented who had already been briefed for a week so we met on a Monday I made the presentation on Friday and they chose those angels. And uh, that was kind of the start of the record thing for me. And, and I then went, I had a very aggressive headhunter that used to place me in an agency long enough to not have to pay the money back that he gets. I had been at the agency that I did Jesus Christ Superstar for about six months. And uh, there were a couple other albums that I had done there because DECA then started giving us all the album cover stuff to do. And, and the headhunter calls and he said, I've got an agency that just does album covers and they need a creative director. And, you know, I was a designer, man. I went from being out of college as a designer to being a creative director in about a year and a half, which would normally take, that's like in the army becoming a, a, a PFC to a general. And, you know, that's a whole lifetime if you could even do it. And I just sort of skipped over a bunch of pay slots and went right to a creative director, which was kind of funny. But uh, they, this guy was in the same kind of situation. He, he had a project that was uh, given to him by his, a kid that he grew up with, a guy named Marshall Chess, whose dad owned Chess Records. And uh, that was sold to Atlantic and they put his dad in charge of, he was the president of Atlantic and he put his son in charge of managing the Rolling Stones and they needed a logo. So he went to his friend, uh, the guy that I was interviewing with to do a logo for the Rolling Stones. And I'm, I'm you know, presenting the Jesus Christ Superstar stuff in the Dolls Alive, which was the international paper company sales meeting uh, to this guy. And he's looking at the Dolls Alive piece that has a pair of lips on the record label of the album. And so I'm showing him that album and he, and he opens it up and he's looking at the record label and he starts telling me the story about how he and Marshall had grown up and Marshall's come back to him now to get a, a logo for the Stones. And if I were to take that pair of lips and just go upstairs to his art department and put a tongue on the outside of those lips, you know, he thinks he could sell it to the Rolling Stones. Wow. So I go upstairs to his art department I spent about 15 minutes drawing a tongue on the outside, had a few teeth, and uh, took it back downstairs to him. And he had a little, a little three-story brownstone uh, on 53rd between Madison and Park. So it was just off Madison Avenue. And it, and it was great because they just did album covers. It was all young people. I was in my 20s, and they were all the same age. And everybody was just like, it was like, kicking ass against the establishment you know i'd come from you know college in oakland and uc berkeley and all that stuff and the people's parks and you know all the stuff that was going on that and then all of a sudden i land in this agency 
that's just doing stuff in that industry because music played a big part of it. Music was a big part of the 60s, even, you know, when I was in college. And then we'll talk about the British invasion when I was in college and how that changed everything. But so, you know, that really kind of uh, was very interesting to me. He took the sketch that I had done, took it to Marshall Chess, who was at Andy Warhol's factory in lower Manhattan, showed it to him and came back a couple hours later, had me stick around and uh, said, okay, you know, um, you just designed a logo for the Rolling Stones and you're gonna, I'm gonna hire you in a few weeks and give you some projects to do in the interim. And, you know, I got 200 bucks in a job. So wow, that's how it worked. And then, ah. and then, you know, that same, and then I did some other albums for that company, like uh, Grand Funk Railroads, big, uh, you know, E Pluribus Funk. And there were a few other ones. And at that time, everything was changing in the music business. The sound was coming no longer from the East Coast in Chicago and Detroit and places. It was coming in Motown. Motown was always Motown. But the, the rock and roll part of it was now coming from San Francisco and Los Angeles. This is in the late 60s, 69, 70. Everything was in the whole hippie movement and all that stuff was happening around that same time. And, and so the guy that we work for wanted to establish an office in Los Angeles, a satellite office, so he could, you know, get in on part of that business. Uh, that business, his business was actually selling packaging to record companies because record companies weren't buying the packaging for albums directly from printers. They were buying it from brokers. He was a broker. And in, back in the day when you'd buy an album uh, in a record store, you guys don't know what those are, but they were stores that actually just sold records, you know, rows and rows of records. And there were little stickers on the album, on the cellophane that went around the album that said, you know, this, this album contains the hit single, Doctor My Eyes, you know, Jackson Brown. Um, and so he, that was his main thing. And he actually did the first, when album covers changed along with everything out. Now the movement's going from East to West, the music's coming from the West, all these recording studios, Sunset Sound, Wally Hyder, they're popping up like crazy in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And, um, and so, you know, we, what he wanted to be, you know, be part of that. So he actually sent myself and his vice president out to Los Angeles to start his satellite office. And, uh, you know, in the interim, you know, we were promised all this work. It never happened. But what I had done was I used to read a lot of uh, the publications like Bill, Billboard and Record World, Cashbox, those were the record business Bibles. And in Billboard, they used to have a little article called Bubbling Under, and it would say who was in the studio, who's getting ready to go out on tour and all that stuff. So I found out, this is probably four or five months before I came out to Los Angeles uh, with his vice president, that Alice Cooper was in the studio, both Alice Cooper and Cheech and Chong were in the studio recording albums and that Alice's album was Schools Out. There was no title yet for big uh, for Cheech and Chong. So I did these two comps. I created hand designed and and, you know, kind of lettered and with markers made it look like a real album. I did a school desk for Alice and I did a big bamboo cigarette paper package for Cheech and Chong. And they were just comps. They weren't printed pieces, I handmade them. And I didn't tell anybody about them because I, I was hoping that I could somehow connect. But supposedly a lot of the work that we were promised by the guy we worked for was gonna come from A&M Records. 
AM Records had a, a, another label under them called Ode Records, and that was Carol King and Cheech and Chong. It was Lou Adler who was the owner of Ode Records and it was being distributed by A&M and it was on the same lot, which was the Charlie Chaplin old movie lot in Los Angeles, right off Sunset. And, uh, and so, you know, we, uh, I put together these comps in hopes that I could somehow, you know, get to one of these guys. You know, our whole job was to create a satellite office, build the art department, build the sales for the art department and, and have a viable, you know, resource on the West Coast. And um, when that work didn't, it didn't materialize, I had shared those two comps with the vice president of the company that I came out to Los Angeles with to start the, he was gonna do the business and I was gonna do the art in. And so I showed those to him and uh, he loved them. And the next day he called up Lou Adler at Ode Records and said, hey, you know, uh, we're out here from New York. We, you know, we've got the creative director that did Jesus Christ Superstar and the Rolling Stones sung and all these other things. And we have an idea for Cheech and Chong for an album cover that we'd like to show you. No obligation on your part. If you give us 15 minutes of your time, we'll love to show you this idea. So he agreed to that. Then he picked up the phone and called uh, Shep Gordon over at, uh, at Alive, which was Alice's manager and told him basically the same thing he had told Lou Adler. We have an idea for Alice Cooper, um, you know, and we'd love to show it to you. Um, can you give us 15 minutes of your time? And this was on like a Thursday, as I remember. And Shep, unlike Lou, who agreed to a meeting, said, you know, have you ever seen Alice live? And of course not. I mean, you know, the, the, he was just starting. Under My Wheels became a big hit, you know, and um, and so we he set us up for a, a coming to a concert at the Palladium. And that's a whole nother story. I'm going, I guess I'm going on too far. You asked me a simple question. I'm giving you a whole, uh, you know, breakdown of everything. But it was, those two things really sort of started it all for us. At the same time, when I was in college, you know, the, the whole English invasion was starting to happen. The Beatles were, were coming out, you know, they were part of it. Uh, the music was, you know, becoming from San Francisco. So all that stuff was happening around the same time when I was in college. A lot of the kids that I went to college with, it was a small art school, had 125 kids. Most of them lived in communes in Haight-Ashbury. So right. we'd go over there and party on the weekends with them. And, you know, I remember many times being out in front of Grunt Records, which was this big Victorian uh, gingerbread house with all this crazy coloring and stuff. And it was the Jefferson Airplanes headquarters. And, you know, and I, I told you uh, when we talked the other day, I said it was really strange for me because here I am out in front of their place in the, at night on everybody's, you know, passing around and, and incense burning and the, the head shops and the black lights and all that stuff. And everybody's sm sm smoking pot and, and uh, dropping acid and stuff. It was kind of crazy. And then a few years later, I'm inside with the Jefferson airplane. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, that happened to me a lot. It was almost surrealistic to be able to have such a passion for music and the people that I really liked the music for, you know, I was working with. I mean, and that's really... That's very surrealistic. And, and I wish the, you know, one of the big things that I wish that I would have been able to do was something for the Beatles because they really, they were instrumental in changing, as far as I'm concerned, everything they touched. There wasn't anything that they didn't touch, you know, and with three guitars and a drum, you know, that's crazy. I mean, how does anybody do that? You know, I mean, it was 
way beyond anybody's imagination. And, and one of the other things that you and I talked about was uh, before was how they, they changed the way music was presented to consumers. When I was in high school, everybody was used to music. Like if I like the platter song and it was a hit single, the next hit single would sound a lot like that song. It would, you could tell it was a platter song. It was similar. So it felt comfortable and they figured, hey, well, if this one sold, this one should sell because that's the sound people want to hear. Right. Beatles came along and changed all that. I remember, we, you know, the first single and then, then the next one didn't, it was different, you know, and then the next album was different, you know, and, and, and unlike albums up to that time where maybe you had one or two singles on that album, every song on a Beatles album was amazing. I mean, it was just, and whether it was the early ones or the later ones, it was just always, they were changing and evolving. And up until then, music was really kind of stagnant. It really was waiting for something unique. And they came along and even before the Rolling Stones, before any of them, the Beatles came along and changed it all. And I think I told you when I was in 1963, I was in the army and when we would go on leave on the weekends and stuff, we, we would go and buy Beatles boots and Beatle wigs because wow. you had to have short hair and you couldn't have a beard or anything, but none of the Beatles had that, but they had the long hair and it wasn't really that long, but you could buy Beatle wigs and Beatle boots. So you could look like you're, even though you're in the army and you got short hair and you're, you know, you, you look <laughs> like you were cool because right. they were cool. You know, the Beatles were, like I said, they were in the right spot at the right time. I've, I found in my career, it's all about timing. You know, no matter how creative you are, I, I know a lot of people that are more creative than I am, but they never, the timing was never right. So many things come into it. To be in the right spot at the right time is critical, but then you have to have the right stuff. So, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's like when people say, oh, the, all the planets are aligning and so it's the right time. Well, that's kind of how successful, you know, when you become successful at what you do, and I mean successful not monetarily, but successful with loving what you do so you don't have to have a job. That to me is success. I've never had to have a job. I just do, I sit down with pens and pencils and draw all day. And just like you were in art school, you know, I mean, in art class, you know, it was the best class you had all, all, uh, all day long. It was everybody looked forward to art and it was an easy grade to get, but you had a lot of fun. And I, my, I've spent the last 52 years having a lot of fun, you know, and again, being in the right spot at the right time. And then, you know, Alice Cooper was a huge, um, a huge advocate for us. You know, Shep Gordon, his manager, is amazing. Alice was amazing. And when I met him in that office, when we went to the concert, and I'll just make a long story short, he, you know, they warned people not to come to the concert. If you have a weak heart, don't come to this concert. We have nurses, we have doctors on staff here. But if you're pregnant, if you, if you have a weak heart, you have any kind of, don't come to this concert. So that's like telling you, you can't do something. And the first thing you want to do is that. So the place was packed and uh, throughout at a certain point in the concert, when they were doing the West side story kind of takeoff on the sharks and the jets, there's a heckler in the audience who Alice ignored at first, but then started interacting with called him up on stage. And when the guy got up on stage, he Alice pulled out a switchblade and stabbed him. And the guy falls over 
on the ground, people are like, what just happened? And the lights go out. It's so dark in there, you can't even see the hand in front of your face, okay? Wow. Lights come back on a couple minutes later, and the band's playing in the background. You hear the band, and then the lights come on, and Alice is going up the steps with a guard on each side of him to the judge that's sitting up on the thing and condemns him to death for killing the guy, right? Lights go out. A couple minutes later, the lights come back on. Alice is in the straitjacket. The drum is building to the crescendo, and he's going up the steps. They put the noose around his neck, okay? And that bottom drops out, and he's dangling like this. Women are passing out. People are freaking out. I mean, screaming and yelling. It's like, and then the lights go out. And you don't, you don't hear anything. You don't see anything. And a couple minutes later, the lights come on, and nobody's on the stage. So everybody's like stamping their feet and yelling, hey, we want an encore, encore. No encore. Wow. No encore. Okay. And after a while, everybody files out. And the first thing you do is you get back home or you get in your car and you turn on the radio. You get to your favorite rock station. And that time, I think it was K-10 or whatever it was there in L.A. And the disc jockeys are talking about, yeah, you know, I, it seems like there was a major accident that happened at Alice Cooper's concert tonight. You know, something messed up and we heard that he hung himself. You know, wow. and he's dead. And so the, all these people are freaking out and they're calling into the disc jockeys and stuff. And the disc jockeys were all part of it. They were working in tandem with Shep Gordon, who is a genius and pulls all this stuff off and Al, the Alice Cooper group. And, and so everybody thinks he's dead. Right. So Monday comes. We go into the meeting at Alive. We go in. There's Shep behind his desk. And there's Alice sitting on the couch drinking a beer. You know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is amazing. And from that day on, that was in 1971. That was like October, November, December, 1971, when we were working on the Schools Out album. And um, from that day on, I mean, we just bonded, you know, and they were really um, beneficial in helping Pacific Ioneer, my company. Can you can you walk me through the first time you you heard the Beatles? Like, were you in art college at that point in the Bay Area? The first time I remember hearing the Beatles, I was in the army. This is 1963. And they were really coming out, you know, they had their singles and, and like I had the whole, you know, Beatle haircuts and the way they dress and everything was so unique about them. And I remember them from like the late, the early sixties. And then by the time I was in college, I mean, the, one of the big albums uh, for me was the Strawberry Fields album. You know, that, 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 that cut was just, it was like an anthem around my art school, you know, and just, and, and there were a lot of people at my school taking acid and our teachers were taking acid. And I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a very small college and it was very um, geared toward just artists. Do the Beatles influence your life in any way aside from just music taste? In college, I was, I was, taking a lot of different classes and changing my, you know, my major every semester. I think the Beatles had a lot to do with that because again, like back to what I was saying, they changed the way you heard music. They changed the way music was presented to fans, to consumers. I mean, it was not like you would normally hear. They changed it. You know, it's like throwing a snowball down a hill. And then by the time it gets midway down, it's like a mountain. And that's what the Beatles did. They, there wasn't anything that you could name that they didn't ch touch. And that you couldn't say that about a lot of things. <laughs> couldn't say that about, I, I can't think of another group that 
I could say that, that did that. Not really. I mean, even, you know, people like Jimi Hendrix, he didn't change everything. Not like the Beatles did, you know, I mean, and, and as right. much as I liked, you know, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, I remember the first time I heard I was in, I was in like junior year of high school and a friend of mine had a, was a guitar player in a local band, uh, Willie Scott and the Velveteens, and he was a bass player and he was always into new music. And I remember being in his house one day and he's playing the, the Jimi Hendrix experience album. And it was like, my God, I never heard anything like this. This is, this is totally unlike anything I ever heard. Well, the Beatles were like that too. And even though their music wasn't like Jimi Hendrix music, it was, it was music that the masses could relate to. It was music that touched everybody, you know, unlike, well, ah, you know, I don't like Jimi Hendrix too weird. I don't like Bob Dylan. The, the guy can't sing, you know, forget about the message, you know, it, and, and the Beatles were able to convey a message and make it so everybody loved it. You know, I, I mean, everybody loved the Beatles, I, even though I did the Rolling Stones song when I was asked to do that. Yeah. For me, it was an assignment. If it would have been a Beatles logo. Oh, shit. Got it. You know, are you kidding me? That that would have been I mean, that couldn't even I couldn't even imagine that. And I remember one time when Wings got formed and they were at Wally Hyder studio in Los Angeles, right off of uh, Cahuenga there. And our studio was in the crossroads of the world about a block away. And we were coming back from lunch. And the Wally Hyder parking lot was right there. And this Rolls Royce pulls up and it's Paul McCartney. It's Linda McCartney. It's uh, a couple other musicians and they go into the recording studio. So I remember I ran back to our office, man. I got our brochure and I ran back there and put it on the windshield uh, under the windshield wiper of their limousine. <laughs> and never heard anything from them, but you know, I mean, uh, I, yeah. They were always uh, aspirational. I mean, I've had a few bands like that. Green Day is another band like that for me. So that's kind of how it, you know, it all kind of started for me, you know, being a you know kid and loving to draw comics and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And, you know, then, then you know, actually <clears throat> taking art classes in junior high school, having a great teacher, had an awesome teacher in high school that really saw the value that I could bring as a creative person, you know, and, and, uh, and he was really instrumental in helping me get into college because I, ne I never wanted to go to college. I was always too busy. I had a 57 Chevy and I dragged the main every weekend and, you know, girls and rock and roll and, and stuff like that. And it just Wolfman Jack, you know, I mean, it was just right. not what I had ever really thought about doing going to college. And it, certainly if I did, I mean, what, what would I do? I mean, like, I'm not going to, I'm not a mathematician or I'm not an English guy. I mean, I did art, you know, for me, it wasn't really ever about the money, even with Pacific Pioneer. I mean, it was never about the money. It was about doing the work. And that's why I was able to do, you know, I'm, I've just, I'm, I'm 249 album covers that I've done, which is quite a few and uh, had great experiences with almost every one of them, you know, made a lot of rock and roll friends did a lot of great work. And the other part of that was, you know, I didn't do it by myself. It was a team and everything I've ever done has been a team effort, whether it's one person and myself or five people and myself. Pacific Ioneer was kind of like, it was kind of like a starting base for 
a lot of people that were coming up at the time. And, and I, you know, I, I used to compare in my mind, I compare Pacific Ioneer and what we did and how we started and who it was a lot like a band, you know, getting started. I, you know, I know you, you play guitar, I play the drums, you know, we, I got a garage where we can rehearse in, I got an amplifier. And then we, we, we got a friend in school who's a bass player and this guy's a songwriter and a singer. And before you know it, you're like gigging in your garage, you're gigging in your neighborhood. Then you start doing local gigs, you know, at high school proms and whatever you want to do it. And that's what we did. We, but we, we leaped over a lot of that and went right to making a hit single. We started out in a garage. There was two of us started Pacific Ioneer in a one bedroom cabin up at the top of right near uh, Capitol Records up in the Hollywood Hills. We had this one bedroom, you know, three of us, my wife and I and, and my partner stayed, lived there. Kitchen table became my partner's business office. The dining room coffee table became my art department. And that's how we started. And as we built the company, we were lucky enough to surround ourselves with other people that were coming up at the same time, you know, just like musicians, you know, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, you know, there's this guy and this guy goes from this group to that group and Buffalo Springfield and then the Yardbirds and all these guys are moving around looking for the right connection, looking for the right chemistry. And that's how Pacific Ioneer started. I mean, I, it, by the time, uh, it, it, at a certain point, at the end of, at the middle of 1972, we had been started for about six months. We had a production artist, a kid named Dean Marion, and he and I were the art department. My partner, Tony, was the sales department. My wife, Bonnie, was the accountant that took care of the billing. And we worked out of this one bedroom house. Then we moved down to the crossroads of the world. And along comes a kid named Drew Struzan, who was just out of college, okay, and needed a job. He had just been married. He has a brand new baby. Nobody will give him a job. Okay. And I looked, I, I had stopped looking at portfolios because it's just too, too, too much time. And I did, I was doing everything. Me was, I was doing all the designing, the illustrating, the gra graphics, whatever. And Dean was doing all the production. And I, I, you know, I couldn't take time out to see other people's work. So I stopped seeing it, but I had made an appointment a couple of weeks earlier with this kid he shows up on a Saturday. I'm working on a Jefferson airplane assignment and he shows me his book. And it's like, it's like looking at like a Michelangelo's portfolio. If you can imagine Michelangelo having a portfolio, that's what it was like looking at this guy's work. It was like unbelievable. And, um, you know, he just needed a job and, and nobody would hire him because he was very religious. He was, and he was very fixed on how we work. I work from Monday to Friday, nine to five. I don't work weekends and I'm in by nine and I'm out by five. And, and a lot of people didn't like that, but the work was just unbelievable. For those of your, you know, that don't know who Drew Struzan is, Google him, Drew Struzan, S-T-R-U-Z-A-N. And if you don't know him, you know his work. He did over 200 movie posters for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, E.T., you name it. He changed what the Beatles did to music. Drew Struzan did to motion picture movie posters. You've seen his work. His work is global. It's used in every country. The language changes. The, you know, the, 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 
it's not in English anymore. It's in Iraq, you know, in Arabic or it's in Chinese or whatever, Spanish, but it's always his artwork. So you know who he is. And I gave him his first job out of, out of college, which was, and, and the other people that joined us, Bill Garland, Joe Garnett, Ingrid Hinkey, they were all doing the same thing. They were coming up, they were out of college, they were looking for work and album covers were what everybody wanted to do because it was real, uh, the crazier you were, the more everybody liked it, you know? So right. it wasn't like working in an agency where you, you sort of had the, you know, these focus groups and these people that all had opinion about stuff. It was you and the band. And if the band loved it, that was all that mattered. The manager would go along with what the band, the record companies would have to go along because they had given control to the groups because that was another thing that was going on at that time because rock and roll was changing and that whole hippie sound and everything from the, you know, Northern California was happening. The record companies were scrambling to sign groups. So they would give them all kinds of perks. Like if you let us sign your group, Jack, we'll give you, uh, you know, we'll give you the right to who, who's going to produce your album, you know, who, where it's going to be produced, you know, all the way down to who's going to design your album and what printing company is going to do your printing for your cover. Because along with everything else that was changing, another big thing that was changing at that time was album packaging. Uh, you guys are too young to remember this because you probably didn't even have albums when you were kids, but there were what they call paper wrap album covers. It was, say it was a front and a back and it had a sleeve that you put the record in and went into this front and back album, front and back cover. It was a chipboard piece of board that was, and then they took two pieces of printed material and adhered it to the cover. So, and the back cover. So, the front cover was printed and would loop over the back a little bit. And then they had a back cover that would they glue onto that. And that would sort of seal what was wrapping around into place. And they would, you know, but so that was moving, the industry was moving away from that, or the, the, actually the, the musicians were moving away from that because you couldn't do die cuts, you couldn't do embossing, you couldn't do other interactive things that you would do, like a big wallet for Alice Cooper or, you know, the Rolling Stones package, Sticky Finger with the zipper in it. You couldn't do that with a paper wrap package. It had to be printed on board the same way a cosmetics box is printed. They don't print it on paper and wrap it to a, a piece of board. They print right on the board. So when you do that, you're able to do die cutting, you're able to do embossing, you're able to do all these great things because the tangencies are not like paper where you can't really control it, you know? So that was changing at the same time when the Beatles were coming along. I mean, you know, and the first interactive album that's really changed at all was the Velvet Underground, that white cover for with the banana on it. Okay, and you could peel the banana Man. off and put it back on. Well, the guy that I went to work for did that sticker he did that banana sticker so when you pull it off the pink bananas underneath and you could stick it back on and it would stick right that was, and it was printed on board wasn't printed on paper wrapped to board so and the, and the cost difference was a lot paper wrap packages about six cents you know a board package is probably 18 cents and then what would happen is, you know, the, they would sign these bands and they would spend all this money doing a board package because everybody wanted to do board. Everybody wanted die cuts and embossing and things that turned into something else. And, you know, they spend all this money on a package and the group sells, you know, 50 albums. 
So they're taking in the shorts. So they started by the mid groups having the kind of control that I was talking about started in the late sixties, early seventies. It went on and by 1984, it was over. It was in what I call the golden age of custom album packaging, where you could make a big wallet. You could make a cigarette lighter. You could make a, uh, we did a Jefferson airplane thing that folded up into a, dr a dope cleaning box. It actually had sides in the record state and a heavy duty sleeve that went in with the rest of your record collection. So you couldn't do that with a paper package. And, you know, and so that whole thing was really, like I said, if you look back, it started with the Velvet Underground album. And in night by the mid eighties, it was, it was over. The groups had lost all control. The record companies had taken it all back, you know, and then other things were changing as well. So, but that era that, you know, I, when the, the British invasion happened and the Beatles came on is, is everything in music. Uh, that was the same. All those other things were going on at the same time. And so we got groups like Black Sabbath and the Jefferson Airplane, the Doors, Jesus Christ Superstar, the Rolling Stones. I mean, like I said, 249 album covers is a lot, you know, <laughs> and I had to fight for each and every one of those because our biggest competitor was not other companies like Pacific Ioneer. There were maybe three. It was Hypnosis in England, who did all the um, Pink Floyd covers. That, that's Hypnosis. And they, they did a lot of mainly photography. Pacific Ioneer was mainly illustration. Well, I had five staff illustrators and a staff photographer. And it was, it was great for me because I could just, and I had these guys that were, we could stand toe to toe to anybody. There was nobody doing stuff like we were doing. They couldn't, how would they compete with Drew Struzan? How would you compete with Bill Garland or Joe Garnett? These guys were major players because of the work that we were able to get that they were able to execute. So then Drew became so popular that he was hired away by the movie business from me. And, and you know, and it, it was all on good terms. I mean, he, Bill Garland and Carl Ramsey, those three illustrators, were hired away from Pacific Ioneer by major movie company design firms. There's a, a, a firm called Tony Seininger and his whole thing was just movie posters. And, you know, he could afford to pay these guys, you know, five times what I could pay them. And it wasn't like, Hey, we're going to leave unless you match the price. They knew I, I couldn't do it. We didn't have the kind of budgets for movie posters or even our corporate work to be able to give them, what this guy was, you know, it would just keep raising the price, you know, okay, you won't do it for, you know, 10,000 a sketch, we'll give you 20,000, you know, because it didn't matter. They're spending millions and millions of dollars on the movies. This firm was doing 80% of the movie posters. So Drew was able to get because of where he ended with us and where he ended with us was the welcome to my nightmare cover. Okay. That for Alice Cooper, that was kind of the evolution of his style coming from art center when I hired him, we were, he was a painter to being an illustrator five years later and going into the movie poster business and changing the whole look and feel of movie posters. He's the guy. I have 73 of his original pieces that we did together in the record business. I don't have any of his movie poster stuff, but to me, the record, the record stuff is more valuable because it's fewer pieces. You know, I've got maybe 35 pieces of his music stuff, a lot of corporate stuff, which is really rare. And he's done over 200 and something movie posters. It's like having Picasso's Blue Period. 
Picasso's, all of his work is, is very expensive, but try and buy a blue period piece. And there were only 38 of them, you know, that they're, they're untouchable. They're, they're priceless. Right. So, and that's how his stuff is that we have in it. And again, it's all part of, you know, what we became, what I'm still doing. I've always had the philosophy that, you know, you leave it better than you found it. Okay. I think that I've made a mark if I died tomorrow there, as long as people have ears and eyes, what I've done, the mark that I've made with these covers and so the corporate work, not so much the album covers because of the exposure and the generations that keep rediscovering. I do a campaign for Nestle for their, uh, you know, their turtles chocolate and it's a successful campaign, but your generation would never remember it. Even if I told you what it was, you wouldn't remember it. I could say Alice Cooper, or I could say the Beatles, or I could say Led Zeppelin, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Because every generation re-experiences it, rediscovers it, along with the new stuff, you know, with hip hop and rap and grunge and punk. You know, it, it all has a place. But the one thing that seems to be consistent across all of them that come and go is rock and roll. You know, and the Beatles were a huge part of that, man. I mean, they, they were amazing. And what is it about them that makes them so amazing? Their songs were simple. Their songs could be relevant today. You could listen to a Beatles song and go, you know what? That was just recorded. That's a beautiful song. And the harmony and, the, and, and three guitars and a drum. Are you crazy? I mean, who would say that three guitars and a drum could, could do what they've done? Never happened. Never in a minute. I would throw you out of my office. Every record company passed on them, you know. Well, you know all that. I'm telling That's you right, stuff yeah. that you already know. Every record company. I mean, and, and, and it was at a time. Okay, so every record company passed on them. But understand there's a bigger part of that, that record companies are looking for any group. They want to just get groups to their label. They're willing to give up stuff to get groups and they pass on the Beatles. I don't, you know, I mean, what do they got shit for ears? I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it was just, they, they're amazing. There's nobody like them. There, there has never been anybody like them, you know, um, in music. I mean, yeah, yeah. You have like your Frank Sinatra's, you have your, you know, Eddie Cantor, you have your Al Jolson's, you can go back in music as far as you want to go back and bring it up to today. There's never been anybody like those four guys. Three guitars and a drum, you know, I mean. Do you have a favorite Beatle? Yeah, uh, both Bonnie and I love Ringo. Oh, Ringo, nice. Yeah, yeah. We were at the uh, Bangladesh concert. When we first went to New York, we had we went to see Grand Funk Railroad and PG&E. And then we went to the Bangladesh, that was at the, at the Fillmore East. Then we went to the Madison Square Garden to Bangladesh. And we had seats that were up on the second level and to the right. So our angle of the stage was at an angle where we could see uh, Ringo on the drums. You know, he was like the main guy we were looking at. And we both loved him. He had his pants leg rolled up and had this little drum set. It was like a little, I mean, you look at some of these bands and they're drummers, man, they got a thousand right. drums and all these cymbals. And it, it looked like a kid's drum set, <laughs> you know, That's and, right. he's, you know, he was just a great drummer, you know, and, and uh, Starkey, the guy, I guess, that was there before him, 
you know, I mean, you talk about bad timing, you know, I mean, you know, you don't think that the group's going to go anywhere. And the next thing you know, they're the biggest thing, but, but it needed Ringo. It needed Ringo. It, that was what it was missing. Not that he's the best drummer in the whole world. And the other guy could have been a better drummer, but he didn't have the personality. He didn't have the look, you know, it's, it goes, it goes along with the talent. The look has to be there. And that's the other thing the Beatles had. They had the look. George, John, Paul, and Ringo. Each one of them looked different. Each one of them had a different personality. Each one had their own personal fan club, you know? Right. And, and yeah, I mean, it was Ringo all the way, no doubt about it. Even though I love John Lennon and Paul McCartney and the harmonies that they would make and the songs they wrote, <clears throat> Ringo to me seemed like the most approachable. He seemed like he'd be a really cool guy. And a good friend of mine, Burton Cummings, from the Guess Who, American Woman, These Eyes, he's my best friend. And he was on one of the Ringo Star All-Stars, Ringo's All-Stars. He did tours. Oh, yeah. And yeah, Burton was on there with uh, Joe Walsh and a couple guys from the Eagles and uh, Jimmy Schmitz and, and Ringo Starr. And he said that Ringo Starr was just the most amazing guy. He was just really you know, down to earth. And he toured with them uh, with that whole tour, one whole tour. And uh, they would do each other's songs and stuff live. And, you know, Ringo was cool with all that. And I guess now his son is a drummer too, right? Right. Yeah. 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 yeah and and it would, they all have sons, right? Yeah. And uh, it would be great. Like, I think you had mentioned that if they, the kids would get together and do a, like a, a Beatles reunite, you know, with the, right, yeah. with the players, the, the sons of the players, you know, and, does Paul McCartney have a son? He does. Yeah, he's got a son named James. Um, I think I think he has a couple of albums, but I'm not sure what he's been up to recently. Yeah. Well, it's hard living in the shadow of something like that, you know. Oh yeah. They they expect so much, and then and even people will be cruel, saying, "Ah, oh, you know, you're not anywhere near like your father or whatever." You know, it's that's a hard thing to live under. You know, I yeah. mean, trying to come up to that. You know, I mean, I I was pretty lucky I was the only artist in my family so I didn't have to overachieve anybody else you know in my family like oh you're not your father you know like Wyatt J.C. Wyatt you know and and living up to his dad and what he had done N.C. Wyatt you know I mean it was it's got to be hard to live like you know under a shadow of something like that but oh yeah, absolutely I, that's why I never had kids yeah I wouldn't want to put them through that no I'm right. just kidding I'm kidding <laughs> yeah I got one more question for you Ernie sure. um Actually, two. So they, they both have to do with album covers. My first question is, in hindsight, which album cover that you've done is your absolute favorite or the one that you're most proud of? My second question is, do you have a Beatles album that you would have liked to do the cover for? No, good questions. You know, good questions. Uh, to answer the first question, um, you know, I, I've done so many. And, you know, I, I, each one... Each one of them is, and I've done a couple of different series where there were, you know, uh, like these old blues singers. I did a series of 50, it was called Gold Dust Series, and there were like 15 of them. I created a format, and then each one sort of had a, a look, a family look to the design and stuff. And I like those for a, a reason, but it's not the same reason that I, I like the Alice Cooper covers for. I mean, each one, it's like a child. Each child you have if you have a few or even a couple, I mean, which one do you, you love them both, 
but not for exactly the same reasons. You see the differences in them and you, you love those and you nurture those. And, you know, I would say, I would break it down more like what was the, the most fun album that I ever had. And that was definitely the Sesame Street Live album. And I just, on my Facebook page, I posted a couple images of it. It was great. I got a chance to go on the set in New York of Sesame Street. I got to meet Big Bird and Grover and, you know, Ernie and Bert, That's you know, awesome. and yeah. And, and create this album that was kind of, it, 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 it folded out like this and there were kids on these two end panels and it went in with more kids. And then there was the, the all the characters from Sesame Street on a stage. So it was like you were there in the audience looking in at all these people on stage. And then on the, when you turned it over, I took the numbers one through 10 and made them really big and fun and cartoon looking and gave them dimension and put pictures all over. And then there was a big poster, a big poster that was inside that had all the songs that were on the album. And we, we got to illustrate around each song. So, I mean, it's beautiful. It's this big poster with all these songs illustrated. So that was the most fun poster. I mean, the most fun cover, the most, the prettiest cover I think I ever did was Burton Cummings' Dream of a Child. I don't know whether you're familiar with that. It was a triple platinum album, but it, it was this photo shoot that we did in my front room. And I had a house in Silver Lake and it was an old Victorian house. And we were sitting this, this scene up on the floor. There was a piano, a little piano that I got and I painted blue. And I, and I had a, a, my secretary's kid was in there and we had this satin sheet and this big blow up of Burton, a portrait of him. And this, this kid was in the shot and I designed this nice lettering that said uh, dream of a child. And we're looking at it uh, and, you know, we got the camera set up and it just wasn't, it was, it was, there was something, the composition was great. Everything was kind of neat looking, but there was something missing. And where the room we were setting it up in behind off to the side was our front door and it had one of those little windows that you look out and see who's there. And it had a little Venetian blind. It was like maybe this big. And for some reason, I turned around and opened up the blind to where it threw this light down on what we were shooting that looked like, it looked like piano keys or it looked like, um, it looked like strips on the side of film. There was something really, I mean, it was amazing. It was because the sun was it exactly the right position in the sky that threw that light in there and cast that shadow? We shot it, and it's absolutely phenomenal. The cover wow. is probably the prettiest cover I ever did. And it, like I said, it just wasn't working. And opening that blind, boom, it changed the whole thing. And check check it out. Dream of a Child, Burton Cummings. And, uh, wow. And so, and then I would say the, the, the craziest albums that we ever did were for Alice, you know, I mean, we had so much fun because again, like I said earlier, there was so much to work with, but he also wanted something that was different than everybody else. Every time we did a cover. Okay. And he really loved the idea of inner of creating. One of the things that we did with our covers was our job was to create the emotional link between the musician their music and the fan. So we need to create a graphic or a, a pictorial bridge that connected 
those elements to each other. That's what we did. And it was an emotional connection that we created. And Alice was, he was open to everything that we did. Billion Dollar Baby's a big wallet, you know, uh, 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 fr uh, from the inside, crazy doors with the, an insane asylum that we shot all this photography at. Uh, the uh, Muscle of Love cover, I don't know whether you're familiar with that, but it was looked like a cardboard box that came with pornography in it and this grease stain along the bottom. And, you know, I mean, it was, and then we did a photo shoot because it, the whole idea was Muscle of Love was, um, at, at the time we did that cover, mud wrestling was a huge thing. Okay, everybody was going to the mud wrestling thing. And it was usually women, you know, in mud pits wrestling with people in the audience or whatever with each other. And it was before strip clubs, I guess. But um, so we did this idea of, of um, sailors on leave going to a mud wrestling place. Okay. And the front of the, and so the box, the album cover front and back is a cardboard box. It's about this thick and inside is a book cover for your school books. There's a sleeve that's got graphics on both sides and the way that package opens up, there's a die cut on the back that looks like a penis. So when you open it up, it looks like just, you know, from the back. So, and then you see this, it must be a sex tool in there because there's this grease stain along the bottom of the package <laughs> that was printed, you know? And, uh, and so the inside sleeve, we wanted to, on one side, it's like Alice and the group going to a, med, a mud wrestling place. And, you know, it's got the windows with the mud wrestling and you come on in and got the awning and all the signage. And there's the uh, hooker on the outside and there's a, a little midget that's uh, 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 the pimp and that was Angie he was Angie he was a famous actor he was in Thunderdome he was the the master blaster on the guys that's Angie and he was in all these old movies he was Bella Lugosi's midget or midget he was his dwarf that followed him around as minion you know in all the Bella Lugosi vampire movies so he was big in all in Hollywood and we got him to be in these photo shoots wow so and then when you put on, the, so on the front of the sleeve, there was a picture of them and we made the front of our building in the crossroads of the world look like a mud wrestling place. Had a big pagoda shaped window and we painted the windows that looked like a mud wrestling saloon or whatever. <clears throat> and, the, and the guys are going in and Alice is in the foreground with all this money. And then on the backside, um, they uh, are all beat up and thrown out because it was a gorilla that was actually wrestling in the mud with them. So he kicked ass on all of them. And then there was another picture of them all on KP duty in the ship, right? In the galley. And there's this big greasy cook just making this stuff on the stove and they're all peeling potatoes and they're all beat up and stuff, you know, and we needed this. We didn't have the money to do a set. So we found out that the Scientologists had a boat in San Pedro Harbor. So we went on the boat and did the photo shoot there. It was crazy. And they, they, they hounded me for years to come and get audited and all that stuff. Cause I was stupid. I put my real name and contact over everybody else, but phony names and stuff. <laughs> and so they, they hounded me for years, man. I mean, it was crazy, but you know, I mean, so that would have been the crazy, some of the craziest albums. And, and then, you know, other people like Melanie, you know, you probably don't know who she was. But oh, yeah. She, yeah. OK, I did three albums for her and and then a lot of comedy albums. George Carlin, you know, uh, Flip Wilson, 
Mont, uh, uh, Franklin Ajayi, um, Cheech and Chong, you know, those were, those were fun albums. I had, a lot of them were fun. To have a favorite one, one favorite, it's hard. It would be hard for any, I love them all for different reasons and I love them all. And it's not just because it's an ego thing. It's more of like, it's, you know what it's like? It's like having fun moments in your life that you never forget. That's right. exactly what it's like. Each time you think of, a, of it or you see a picture of it, you remember everything about it and what made it so memorable and what made it stick in your mind, you know, and that's how these covers are with me. You know, I mean, even more than the corporate work, I've done a lot of really great corporate work that, you know, that you would know if I told you, but you know, it's not the same as music where it's rediscovered over and over again, you know? Um, and for me, that's, that's like the biggest, the biggest pleasure I get, like knowing that I made a mark. Isn't that what we all want to do? We all want to leave a mark that says Kilroy was here or I was here, you know, I mean, and, and, and I've done that. I've done that 249 times. It's really kind of neat, you know? And, and uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know whether that answers your question enough, but that's kind of how it is with me. And, and as far as the favorite Beatles album, you know, I think that, I, you know, Rubber Soul, you know, um, Revolver. Uh, I, I got a chance to meet Klaus Mormon, the illustrator that did that cover for Revolver. Oh, he wow. is an artist as well as a musician. He's an accomplished artist. And there was an artist that went to work. The first illustrator that came to work for Pacific Ioneer was a guy named Joe Garnett. Rest his soul, he just passed away last year. And, you know, he was a great friend. We did a lot of work together. Great work. He's the one that did the doors full circle painting and beautiful stuff. And, and uh, Klaus Vorman was his studio. They shared a studio together in Los Angeles. And I got a chance to meet him. Really nice guy. I would have loved to have been able to do that cover. I would have loved to do any Beatles cover. Cause like I said, they were, you know, and it, it is as much accolade as I get or recognition I, as I get for the Rolling Stones done for me, that was, that was a project that I, I, li I like the Stones, but it wouldn't have been the same as if I would have been able to do a Beatles cover. I just, I, Beatles were my guys. The fact that I always wanted to be versatile and have different things that I was doing versus just being an album cover designer or just being a Madison Avenue ad guy, you know, having the variety is what keeps you young. You know, it's what I say, it's, it's what keeping me, uh, making history instead of becoming it because a lot of the people that I've worked with my peers have become history wow you know? and uh, you know I, I don't want to be history I want to make it I've always made it my whole career if we started at some point maybe you can have me on again and we can talk about some of the corporate stuff you know but I, I know it's not in the wheelhouse of what the Beatles are all about but I was influenced by them and, and by being influenced by them made me who I am today. And I'm still a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of the Stones, but I'm a bigger fan of the Beatles, you know, because they were, for me, they were the first ones that really changed it all, you know, and, 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 and when you're in college, you know, and you're young like that, change is very important. You know how change is important in your life. Oh, yeah. And it's really welcomed, right? You seek it out. Guess what? When you get to be my age, change is screwed up, man. Change is scary. That means that things change. 
that means that the job that I had that I was secure with the agency that I was the client that I had now there's a new director and he's got his own people. So change isn't so welcome, you know, and the Beatles were really the ones that confirmed it all for me, confirmed the fact that you need to have that variety, that you need to be not pigeonholed, that you need to have more skill set than one, you know, so I'm very lucky. I'm still relevant because are you familiar with John Henry and the steel driving machine? Heard of it. Yeah. Okay. John Henry was this steel driving guy. He was a, a black guy who was a railroad guy and he would lay down track and stuff. And he was this big muscular guy. And along came the steel driving machine, which could lay steel spikes into the rails the same way he did. Only he had a sledgehammer. So <clears throat> there became this contest between John Henry and the steel driving machine. And at the end of it, John Henry beats it. He beats the steel driving machine. He's got a sledgehammer in each hand and he's just, but he dies. But he beat the steel driving machine. I feel like I'm fighting with the, I'm competing with that steel driving machine up until I had Bob on the computer. Now I am the steel driving machine and John Henry both. So right. it's, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it may not make a lot of sense, but to me, it makes perfect sense. I've, I've been lucky to keep sense, existing. Yeah. I've been able to keep relevant. And that's really what it, if you want that moment in the sun, you got to stay relevant. Whether you're a musician, whether you're an artist, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're laying drywall, whether you're a painter of houses, you just have to keep upping it. You have to keep relevant. And that's important because if you're not, then people forget. And I want to be remembered for a long time. And to this day, I'm still, you know, still making history. Haven't become it yet, you know. <laughs> and Ernie, if anyone's looking to buy your merchandise or your album artwork, where can they find that? Okay, yeah, I have a, a there's a couple of sites. The first site is pacificiandear.com, and the and is spelled out. So it's Pacific, P A C I F I C E Y E A N D E A R.com. And then there's, if you want to see uh, more of the art, there's a, um, I have a site that shows some of the tours that I've had. I've had two museum shows. The most, uh, uh, the, the best one was at the Smithsonian Museum in Memphis. Uh, it's their first satellite museum. And that website is thefineartofrock.com. So thefineartofrock.com. And then there's um, originalalbumcoverart.com. There, there, and you'll see more art there. And if you don't see something that you want to know if I have, just send me a message. And uh, there's a contact information on, I think, well, I can give it to you. It's Ernie at Hornbook, H-O-R-N-B-O-O-K-I-N-K.com. So it's I-N-K, not I-N-C. And just tell me, do you have this or do you have that? And, you know, like I said, there's, I've got over 350 pieces of music art and 33 pieces for Alice, all these other bands, Black Sabbath and, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, the Rolling Stones song, have all that stuff, have shirts, posters, prints, hand-drawn prints, and tapestries and throws and all kinds of t-shirts, limited edition of t-shirts, but all that stuff is, you know, available on either one of those three sites or just reach out to me on my email. So that's, yeah, that's awesome. it. Yeah. Cool. 
Ernie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jack, thank you, man. And you, you look exactly the same as you did months ago. Yeah. You haven't aged at all. <laughs> Me, I've aged. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm Jack. You can visit our website, BeatlesEarth.com. Check out our Twitter, at BeatlesEarth. Uh, check out Ernie's website, PacificEyeAndEar.com, or you can email him. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it. Follow it. Leave reviews. Let me know who you want to have on this podcast. And as always, I'll see you next week.